Hey, it's producer Greg from the NASM CPT podcast back to tell you about something very special that we're going to share with you today. We are launching a new podcast, bringing a new one into the NASM podcast network family to go along with the NASM CPT podcast. It's called the fitness and wellness master class. And we wanted to give you a sneak peek of the very first episode. You can hear it here and then you can go subscribe uh, wherever you listen to podcasts by searching the Fitness and Wellness Masterclass. Uh, you'll find it there. And what the great thing about this show is, is that you can listen, learn, and then earn CEU credit. That's right. Just for listening, you can earn CEU credit by clicking the link in the description of the podcast and following the instructions on how to purchase CEUs for just $35. So you'll listen, you'll take a quick quiz, and you will earn 0.2 CEUs towards your NASM recertification. So really excited. And now for the first episode of the Fitness and Wellness Masterclass. You're listening to the Fitness and Wellness Masterclass, powered by NASM. Want to earn continuing education credits for listening? NASM's CEU Corner is one of the best continuing education offers available. By simply listening to this podcast and completing the corresponding online quiz, you can earn .2 NASM CEUs for a $35 fee. Click the link in the show notes to sign up. Hydration through the lens of fitness and health by Jennifer Claw. Newsflash, there's a substance available right now that improves mood and cognition, reduces the risk of high blood pressure and high blood glucose, and possibly helps reduce body weight and overeating. There's even compelling evidence that regular consumption decreases the burden of heart and kidney disease and, in fact, makes all types of cells better at their jobs, while ensuring that they die when it's their time to go. Drum roll, please. It's water. Yep. Good old H2O. Even for CPTs who have always valued good hydration in their own self-care regimen, many of the associated complexities may come as a surprise, as they are grounded in research that is new or has been recently updated. If you thought water was basic and boring, it's time to look at it in a new light. Are you ready to meet an old friend again for the first time? Go ahead and refill your water bottle first. I'll wait. It's not just water in, water out. Hydration. It seems like it should be pretty basic. Drink when you're thirsty, pee when you have to, you're good, right? Not quite. Previously viewed as a state, hydration might be better regarded as a process that includes an ongoing set of behaviors and biological functions. Determining a person's hydration status is complex. It shifts repeatedly throughout the course of a day, so it's not a steady state. Addressing hydration as a process makes sense because regular intake of fluids and excretion of urine, in and of themselves, confer benefits beyond maintaining water levels in the body. Water. You need it. Bad. Humans have an inherent, critical need for water. It is the medium in which all of our metabolic reactions occur. It gives form to our cells, lubricates our joints and tissues, transports nutrients and waste, and dissipates excess body heat. Not only is regular fluid intake one of the easiest, cheapest health interventions ever, 
It may also be one of the keys to optimizing health and well-being over the long term. Good hydration habits appear to have an outsized positive impact on renal, cardiovascular, and endocrine health, and may even play an important role in addressing obesity. For example, in a study of people diagnosed with overweight or obesity, those who consumed 500 milliliters of water just before each daily meal lost 2 kilograms more over the 12-week study than did those on the same diet who did not imbibe before each meal. It seems that drinking water before meals reduced energy intake, improving hydration and weight loss in a single step. Finally, if that's not enough to get you reaching for plain water, a recent study found that drinking half a liter of water increased energy expenditure at rest by 30% for about 90 minutes. Water. By the numbers. The amount of water in the body is referred to as total body water, or TBW, and it represents 50 through 60% of total body mass, or 70 through 80% of fat-free body mass. TBW is in constant flux, with continual losses to respiration and insensible sweat, as well as intermittent losses to urine, feces, and sensible sweat. This output is about 2.5 liters daily, with additional losses occurring from physical exertion or a hot environment. Also variable is the intake of fluids necessary to offset those losses. For most people, beverages account for about 60% of water intake and foods 30%. Metabolism contributes the final 10% as a byproduct of fat burning. Water needs vary from person to person. For instance, people with obesity require more fluids than non-obese populations, owing to metabolic rate, body surface area, and body weight. For context, however, the National Academy of Medicine says that the adequate fluid intakes for male and female adults are 3.7 liters daily and 2.7 liters daily, respectively, with 0.7 liters and half a liter of that coming from food. There's a lot of fluid needed from beverages, and there is evidence that most Americans drink significantly less than this. Yes, no, or almost. If we stop thinking of hydration as a yes or no state, we can start considering the different levels of almost and why they matter. Technically speaking, dehydration is a 4% or greater drop in total body water, but a fluid loss as small as 2% of body mass will noticeably diminish both mental and physical function. Thanks to the adaptability of the human body, it's fairly easy for people to walk around in a state of mild underhydration, referred to as hypohydration, without drastic day-to-day -day consequences. However, the acute adjustments that allow the body to compensate can also set us up for longer-term trouble. Over the last decade or more, research has focused on the effects of chronic hypohydration and found that it may undermine overall health in ways big and small. It can negatively affect mood, cognition, metabolism, and kidney and cardiac health, while possibly having implications for immune function and cancer prognosis. To really grasp how dehydration and hypohydration affect the body, it helps to look more closely at the physical processes involved. As with real estate, one of the first things to consider is location, location, location. Water. Water everywhere. Most water in the body resides in two types of compartments, intracellular and cellular. 
The two primary extracellular compartments are the intravascular compartment, which contains plasma, and the interstitial compartment, which contains any fluid not located in the body's cells or plasma. Extracellular fluid refers to water inside cells, and extracellular fluid refers to water outside of cells. Because cell membranes are permeable to fluid via aquaporins, fluid moves freely between the three compartments. One cause of this is osmosis. In osmosis, water moves from areas of high fluid concentration to areas of low concentration in an attempt to balance the levels on both sides of the cell membrane. This movement is driven, in part, by the quantity of solutes in each compartment. Solutes cannot move through the cell membranes, but fluid can. During osmosis, water moves from areas of lower solute concentration to areas of greater concentration, shifting the amount of water on each side of the membrane. An area with a higher solute concentration cannot help but pull water into it, even if this creates other problems. When equilibriated, the three compartments, think of them as buckets, hold the appropriate amounts of fluid. However, when one bucket experiences a loss of water volume or an increase in solute concentration, water from another bucket is more likely to pour in to balance things out. This difference between solute concentrations on the two sides of a semi-permeable membrane is called an osmotic gradient, and it drives water flow between compartments. Water moving in or out of the ICF may cause cells to shrink or expand. A little change in size is a small problem, but large shifts can trigger undesirable signaling cascades affecting metabolism, transport, hormone release, cell proliferation, and programmed cell death. Cells get ticked when they shrink or swell. Shrinkage of cells in the ICF is the consequence of chronic hypohydration, and you will soon see why it has been accused of health crimes. While the rules of osmosis may seem cut and dried, the body is more complex than that. Certain parts of the body do a more important job than others, so they take priority when it comes to allocation of resources, including water. Case in point, plasma accounts for only 7% of total body water, while most of the body's water, about 60-70%, through 70 is found in intracellular fluid. However, adequate blood volume is critical to maintaining whole body homeostasis, Plasma is, after all, the body's crucial transporter of nutrients, waste, oxygen, and carbon dioxide. Viscous blood doesn't flow as nicely and tends to clump. Lower blood volume and thicker blood means each organ system, heart, lungs, kidneys, liver, has to do more with less, making its job more difficult. Thus, the body prioritizes the intravascular compartment at the expense of other fluid compartments. One demonstration of this prioritization is that blood osmolality, the balance of water to dissolve substances, remains remarkably consistent in people with widely different levels of habitual water intake. Thus, the intravascular compartment's volume is maintained, but if enough fluid for this purpose is not provided by an external source, the water has to come from somewhere within the body. This need can arise, for example, when ad libitum intake is subject to unconscious involuntary dehydration, where the individual drinks to satiety but does not overcome a water deficit. What about electrolytes? Maintenance of total body water depends not only on fluid ingestion, but also on electrolyte concentration gradients in the fluid compartments. Electrolytes are electrically charged particles from salts dissolved in water, and they are important for both rehydration 
and the capacity to hold on to a higher level of body water. Predominant osmolites in the ICF and ECF are the electrolytes potassium and sodium, respectively. Sodium exerts the strongest influence because of its role as primary driver of volume in the extracellular compartments. This information is particularly important when working with endurance athletes because sodium is a primary component of sweat and people with a faster sweat rate will lose more sodium in a given exercise session. Fluid to form sweat is drawn from blood plasma, so exercise of longer duration poses a challenge to blood volume and viscosity. As plasma volume decreases, its tonicity increases, thus pulling water out of the body's cells. Most diets in developed countries supply sufficient sodium to retain ingested water, and of note to athletes, to prevent exertional cramps. If you have clients on sodium-restricted diets, they should initiate a discussion with their physician. In 2013, the Institute of Medicine reported that there was a lack of conclusive scientific evidence of benefit or harm in reducing sodium consumption to previously recommended levels. If dietary sodium is low or restricted, it may inhibit restoration and retention of ingested fluids, which can allow hypohydration to develop or continue. On the other hand, even athletes do not need excessive sodium intake. The Body's Balancing Act The body's fluid-to-electrolyte balance, osmolality, is regulated by the renin-aldosterone-angiotensin system, otherwise known as RAAS. This controller, involving the brain, the kidneys, and sensors throughout the body, is tasked when ensuring that we have enough sodium to sustain cellular function and fluid balance. This, in turn, drives blood volume and therefore blood pressure. When blood osmolality increases above normal, it is detected by osmoreceptors in the brain. This triggers the pituitary to release arginine vasopressin. AVP triggers reabsorption of water by the kidneys, making urine more concentrated. It also results in constriction of blood vessels to maintain blood pressure and elicts feelings of thirst, inducing fluid intake. In conjunction, Pressure-sensitive receptors in blood vessels sense the decreased blood volume and respond by triggering the release of aldosterone, a corticosteroid. Aldosterone increases sodium reabsorption by the kidneys, and because water follows salt, this enhances water retention. Aldosterone also simulates sodium appetite, which further increases thirst. When blood osmolality decreases or there is a large influx of water from the small intestine, AVP drops thirst disappears, and the kidneys produce a greater volume of dilute urine. A little low on water? While occasional mild hypohydration is not a problem, being chronically dehydrated may be a threat to long-term health and well-being. Low TBW keeps the RAAS in a constant state of activity, with high circulating levels of the hormone cortisol. This suggests an overstimulation of the body's stress response system. In terms of exercise, fluid is important not just for aerobic performance, but also for maintaining optimum muscle tissue. Dehydration leads to increased production of urea, suggesting that water deprivation is accompanied by body tissue catabolism. Chronic hypohydration appears to increase catabolism even when dietary protein needs are met. There is evidence that those with persistently low body water are at higher risks of serious chronic conditions, including type 2 diabetes, kidney disease, and metabolic syndrome.
AVP apparently alters liver glucose production and its breakdown of stored glycogen, while also impairing insulin secretion and insulin sensitivity. In people diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, low TBW deteriorates glucose regulation. Diabetes is already a challenge to TBW because excess glucose in the blood acts as an ospolite, pulling water from cells to counteract the higher osmotic pressure in the ECF. The kidney glucose transporters become saturated, so glucose is lost in the urine, pulling excess water with it. Thus, the water never gets to the ICF, where the thirst was triggered. Hence, the diabetes symptoms of excessive thirst and large volumes of urine. Although it may seem counterintuitive, restricting water will only exacerbate the problem for people with diabetes. Blood glucose clearly needs to be controlled, but optimal hydration will help the body better manage the condition overall. A broad range of other diseases are also associated with markers of hypohydration. Heart failure, vascular dementia, cognitive impairment, inflammatory bowel disease, cancer, and premature mortality. Obviously, many of these illnesses are multifactorial, and association is not causation. Nonetheless, those are heady concerns for a substance that, until recently, didn't even figure into nutrition recommendations. Here's the good news. Of all the ills associated with our underactive, overfed modern lives, hypohydration has an inexpensive, uncomplicated fix. In a 2016 study, people with low to moderate fluid intakes who increased their water consumption over as little as six weeks saw a nearly 25% drop in circulating copeptin, a marker of AVP associated with low total body water. Study participants consumed either 50 through 80% or 80 through 120% of fluid intake recommended by the European Food Safety Authority, and the results were similar for both groups. These recommendations are lower than those from the National Academy of Medicine. For adults, EFSA recommends water intakes of 2.5 liters daily for men and 2.5 liters daily for women. That's 1.2 liters and 0.7 liters less, respectively, than the National Academy of Medicine suggests. Soaking it up. Many factors affect how quickly the body takes in fluids consumed in food and beverages. Water absorption, which occurs mainly in the small intestine, is important for everyone but may be particularly of interest to athletes wondering how much and what to drink before, during, and after various levels of energy expenditure. Whether we absorb the water from fluids we consume depends on our gastric emptying rate, or how fast fluid leaves the stomach. Gastric emptying rate is a function of several things, including the volume of fluid in the stomach, the calories in that fluid, and the body's immediate energy expenditure. Following are some factors to consider when seeking to speed up gastric emptying rate and get fluids to the body parts that need them most. Volume and temperature. In general, the greater the volume of fluid in the stomach, the faster it exits. This is true up to about 600 milliliters, at which point the rate may level off. People tolerance varies, of course. Interestingly, refilling the stomach regularly with a large volume rather than drinking slowly and continually, will enhance gastric emptying. However, drinking a large volume in a short time right after working out is not recommended. Beverage temperature, contrary to a popular myth, does not affect water uptake. Cold drinks are often the most palatable in an exercise situation, particularly in a hot environment, so it's good to know temperature will not slow the rate of gastric emptying or intestinal absorption. Calories and electrolytes. 
Plain water is emptied from the stomach and absorbed in the intestine faster than fluids containing electrolytes or calories. But even large doses of fluids with electrolytes or calories are likely to be rapidly filtered, as the body's regulation system may perceive a water overload. Here are a few types of beverages and their notable characteristics. Fruit juice and soft drinks. Salute concentration in fluids is measured in milliosmoles per kilograms. In beverages with similar energy and electrolyte contents, a moderately hypotonic solution is absorbed two times faster than an isotonic or moderately hypertonic solution. The problem with hypertonic beverages, which include fruit juice and soft drinks, is that they draw water out of the body water pool into the intestine to make them isotonic. This delays absorption of their water content and makes them ineffective for rapid rehydration, especially during or following competition. Sports drinks. Carbohydrate electrolyte solutions that have a carbohydrate concentration of 2.5% or less will empty from the stomach about as fast as plain water. However, sports drinks can have their problems. Those with carbohydrate concentrations of 6% or higher will slow gastric emptying and may cause GI distress during activity. Also, many store-bought versions contain fructose which has been shown to enhance carbohydrate oxidation at low to moderate exercise intensities, but can be difficult for some people to digest. Incidentally, fructose is found in fruit juices and many other sweetened beverages too. If someone gets gassy or uncomfortable after drinking a commercial sports drink, fructose may be the culprit. Fortunately, a sports drink can be made at home to suit an athlete's precise taste and needs at a low cost. Caffeine. Although caffeine has an acute, mild diuretic effect, spurring production of excess urine, it is not dehydrating when consumed in levels below 500 through 600 milligrams a day. For context, a Starbucks 12-ounce black coffee has about 240 milligrams, a double espresso about 160 milligrams. Higher caffeine consumption can generate urine and excess of fluid intake, in which case additional fluid should be consumed to counteract this effect. Drinking up, working out. When exercise will last longer than two hours or take place in high heat, exercisers should arrive optimally hydrated. Neither hyperhydrated, with an excess of total body water, nor hypohydrated. This is particularly important if fluid loss from sweat will be high, in which case sodium losses via sweat will probably also be high. Known as euhydration, optimal hydration likely improves anaerobic performance and certainly won't hurt it, which cannot be said for taking in too much or too little fluid. Starting at a loss. Beginning an endurance event, hypohydrated compromises performance. The water defect increases cardiovascular strain, raises heart rate and rating of perceived exertion for the same relative effort, and amplifies the thirst sensation. High temperatures increase the degree of impairment and discomfort. Using diuretics to make weight in sports like wrestling or rowing incurs greater strain during the exercise that follows. Dehydration, especially when it exceeds a loss of 2% body mass, reduces endurance exercise performance and shortens time to exhaustion. Anaerobic endurance, muscle strength, and power all decrease as well. Further, such dehydration can induce plasma hyperosmality, which increases heat storage by delaying and decreasing sweat in attempt to conserve water. Performance is more severely affected at fluid losses of 3-4% through of body weight. Therefore, as much as possible, body mass losses during an event should be limited to 1 through 2%, and sodium should be included in fluids consumed. In cooler temperatures, dehydration of more than 2% may be tolerable, 
but as the temperature increases, smaller levels of dehydration may have a greater effect. When continuous exercise is performed in heat, fluid intake exerts a greater magnitude of improvement. Too much of a good thing. Overhydration does not enhance performance either. Hyperhydration does not improve aerobic or anaerobic performance and can, at extremes, be fatal. Attempting to stuff fluids, especially plain water, beyond thirst can bring on a life-threatening condition called exertional hyponatremia. The Na in hyponatremia refers to sodium's periodic table symbol Na. If blood levels of sodium become hypotonic or too dilute, osmotic pressure in the extracellular components decreases. Remember that sodium is the primary driver of ECF volume, so its loss or insufficiency means water will flow out of the ECF, further depleting volume, and will flow into the body's cells, causing them to swell. This becomes particularly dangerous in the brain because cell swelling there will lead to an increased intracranial pressure, a dangerous condition called cerebral encephalopathy. Exercise also results in the shunting of blood to active muscles, leading to decreases in kidney filtration and urine production and making it harder for the body to counter a fluid overload. Even with sodium supplementation, exertional hyponatremia can occur, particularly in ultra-endurance events or those lasting longer than 18 hours. Because a lower total body water is more easily diluted, women are at higher risk of hyponatremia, as are people whose initial NA levels are low. Event duration is another risk factor. The longer it takes athletes to complete a marathon or Ironman distance event, the more opportunity they have to consume excessive fluid and the longer they will be sweating, and therefore losing more sodium. Use of medications such as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors confer additional risk. Clients may benefit from being made aware of the potential effects of these common medications. Sweating the small stuff. Average sweat rate can help you roughly determine fluid losses, as can simple strategies for checking hydration. Looking at individual losses is important because sweat rate ranges from 0.5 liters to extremes of 3.5 liters an hour. Looking at individual losses is important because sweat rate ranges from 0.5 liters an hour to extremes of 3.5 liters an hour. This does not mean you should attempt to consume that amount of fluid during each hour of exercise. It is unlikely you could absorb that much and overhydration puts you at a risk of exertional hyponatremia. Additionally, while negative consequences can ensue from drinking too much before or during an exercise, consuming large amounts of fluid over a short time post-workout is not advisable either. This practice will overstimulate the kidneys, producing large volumes of urine, which undermines rehydration. Here's an example of how to gauge rehydration needs. If your sweat rate is 2 liters an hour and you consume about 1.5 liters an hour, you'll lose about half a kilogram an hour over your intake. So after 3 hours, you will have lost 1.5 kilograms, or about 2%. Here's an example of how to gauge rehydration needs. If your sweat rate is 2.5 liters an hour and you consume about 1.5 liters an hour, you'll lose about half a kilogram an hour over your intake. So after 3 hours, you will have lost 1.5 kilograms, or about 2%. If you are able to absorb more than 1.5 liters an hour without feeling fluid sloshing in your stomach, you can try that. It's important to remember that it doesn't take much over drinking to overwhelm body sodium stores. 
Generally speaking, the best strategy is to drink to thirst or comfort, but not beyond. If water is sloshing in your stomach, you don't need to drink more. Getting it back. Following dehydrating events or practices, rehydration is a process that occurs over time and requires ingestion of 150% of the volume lost to sweat. In situations when complete rehydration between events, particularly those of longer duration, is limited by time or availability, athletes should consume fluid as they can and then restore full total body water when possible, overnight for example. In such cases, sports drinks can aid in replenishing electrolytes and carbohydrates as well as fluids. A strategy of metered fluid consumption can help the process. This refers to dividing up the total fluid to be ingested into eight portions, the first to be consumed immediately after the event, with another dose every 30 minutes thereafter, until the process is complete. Metered consumption increases hydration efficiency, the amount of water retained by the body without prolonging dehydration. Of course, post-workout is not the only time when it is important to counter dehydration. If your self-checks indicate dehydration at any time, increase your water intake by about 1.5 liters beyond what you normally drink during the day. Your urine should be about two shades lighter within about 24 hours, a good indicator that you're back on track. This may be a topic to discuss with clients, too, as some may be experiencing chronic hypohydration and not be aware of it. Show what you know. Euhydration is not magic, but it's a goal that can reverberate through one's personal health and fitness, barring medical contraindication, striving for a consistent, adequate intake of plain water, can only enhance health now and in future years. As fitness professionals, we provide all kinds of lifestyle improvement suggestions to our clients and gym members. Advising them of ideal hydration habits is another service we can provide that will enhance health. Further, the recommendations are simple and inexpensive, so barriers to improving hydration, other than the inconvenience of frequent urination, are typically low. In fact, drinking more water may be one of the easiest things you've ever suggested, with an outsized payoff for you and your clients, families, and friends. As always, our suggestions are most powerful when we model them, so hydrate thyself, and then help others soak up some knowledge too. Key terms. Dehydration. A loss of 4% or more of total body water, TBW, also the process by which body water is lost. Diuretic. Spurring extra urine production by kidneys to maintain TBW balance, a substance causing this effect. Electrolyte. An electrically charged particle resulting from salts dissolved in water. Euhydration the ideal amount of body water necessary to sustain normal physiological functions of the body. Extracellular fluid. Fluid outside the body's cells includes fluid in the intravascular compartment, plasma, the fluid component of blood, and fluid in the interstitial compartment, not plasma and not fluid inside cells. Hyperhydration, an excess of total body water. Hypohydration, a mild deficit of total body water. Hyponatremia, water toxicity, decreased concentration of sodium in the body due to overconsumption of fluid or a failure to spontaneously remove urine. Intracellular fluid, fluid inside the cells. Osmolality, the body's water to electrolyte balance measured in millimoles of solute per kilogram of solvent. Osmolite, a substance that affects the flow of fluids via osmosis. Osmotic gradient, 
the difference in concentration between two solutions on either side of a semi-permeable membrane. Overhydration, excess fluid consumption leading to excess total body water. Rehydration, the process of restoring normal total body water from a hypo or dehydrated state. Tonicity, effective osmotic gradient, relative concentration of solutes, drives movement of water between body compartments. Hypertonic, more solutes outside the cell than inside. Hypotonic, more solutes inside the cell than outside. Isotonic, equal tonicity, relative osmotic pressure. Total body water, the overall amount of water in the body. Special considerations for senior populations. In people over the age of 65, in people over the age of 65, total body water decreases. This is partly because water is dependent on fat-free mass. So age-related muscle loss, known as sarcopenia, causes total body water levels to drop. Osmo and baroreceptors also become less sensitive in older adults, so thirst tends to be less pronounced and the kidneys become less effective at concentrating urine. For these reasons, determining hydration status becomes more difficult in seniors than in younger age groups. For more information on the special needs of seniors, the NASM Senior Fitness Specialization provides guidance on fitness programming using the NASM Optimum Performance Training Model, as well as understanding this group's concerns, common conditions, and fitness obstacles. Easy ways to check hydration without lab work. There are several ways to gauge hydration levels without doing lab work. They involve measures that are easy to check at home, including thirst, body weight, and urine volume and color. Think about thirst. First thing in the morning, before exercising and before eating or drinking anything, assess your thirst on a scale of 1 through 9, with 1 being not thirsty and 9 being thirstiest I've ever been. If you feel very thirsty, chances are good that you are down about 2% of body weight, meaning you're mildly dehydrated. This thirst perception rating can serve as a good baseline throughout the day. Step on a scale. Unless you are actively losing or gaining weight, most day-to-day -day variations in weight are more fluctuations in total body water. To establish a baseline, weigh yourself nude, first thing in the morning after using the bathroom, three days in a row. To establish a baseline, weigh yourself nude, first thing in the morning after using the bathroom, three days in a row. The average of these three weights is a pretty good representation of your weight. Keep a record of this number and use it for comparison with your post-workout weight, then rehydrate accordingly. This is not a good gauge in the days after a high salt intake, which will cause fluid retention that does not correspond with good hydration. A sudden excess of water is eliminated very rapidly within hours of consumption, but excess sodium takes days to be removed, demonstrating that these mechanisms operate on different time frames. Consider your output. No one expects you to measure urine output, though you can if you want to. But if you don't need to urinate at least every three hours or so, you probably aren't hydrated. Urine color can also help you assess your hydration level. A pale yellow color indicates good hydration. A darker sunflower yellow shows normal hydration or slight dehydration. If the color shifts to a mustardy or brownish color, you are exhibiting a sign of dehydration. Many things can affect urine color, including drinking a large quantity of water soon before urinating or taking B vitamins, which can darken it. Using at least two methods to gauge hydration will give you a clearer picture of where you stand. How to calculate sweat rate. Knowing how much water you lose to sweat can be helpful in sustaining hydration or at least in not losing too much fluid during a practice or event. 
it will also help you restore eu-hydration later. Here is an assessment that can help you approximate your average sweat rate. The 30-minute sweat rate test. 1. Empty the bladder. Then take a nude weight, ideally in kilograms. Exercise for 30 minutes. Take a nude weight again. Subtract post-exercise weight from pre-exercise weight. Then double the difference to approximate SR per hour in liters. Note. The 30-minute test is easiest if you avoid drinking or eating anything during the exercise. If you drink any fluids beforehand, add that amount to the difference in weights in step 4. Example, if your pre-exercise weight was 72 kilograms and you weigh 71 kilograms afterward, and you did not drink anything before the workout, your sweat rate is 2 liters an hour. If the weight difference is 500 grams and you drank 250 milligrams of fluid beforehand, Add that to the 500 gram for a loss of 750 grams, or a sweat rate of 1.5 liters an hour. Want to earn continuing education units for listening? AFAA's CEU Corner is one of the best continuing education offers available. By simply listening to this podcast and then completing the corresponding online quiz, you can earn two AFAA.2 NASM CEUs for a $35 fee. Click the link in the show notes to sign up.